Welcome to Feminist Coffee Hour. You can find us online at feministcoffeehour.com, on Twitter at femcoffeepod, or you can send us an email to feministcoffeehour at gmail.com. I'm Elizabeth, and Karen is working on her thesis, but I am here today with Melanie DiRigo, a community activist, mother of three, and healthcare advocate running in the Democratic primary for Congress in New York's 3rd District. Welcome to Feminist Coffee Hour. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you for talking to me today. So I guess my first question is, uh, well, first, I'd just like to say that um, if you won, I would be one of your constituents. Yay. And that uh, as a matter of full disclosure, I am a supporter of yours. I have contributed to your campaign. So I just want to say that like right off the bat um, where my bias is. But a question that I have for you and one that I was thinking about, you know, before before you ran is why would you primary Tom Sawazi? <laughs> well, great question to kick it off. But first, let me thank you for your support. Uh, it means a lot. Why would I primary Tom Swazi? Uh, there's a whole long story behind that that really starts out for me when Trump was elected. Uh, when he was elected, I guess I was about eight months pregnant. I took my little, my oldest daughter to vote, and I thought we were going to have the first female president at the time. And I, I had a conversation with my belly at the time, and I, I said to my now son that this world is going to be so different for you. You're going to grow up with a female president, and it's going to shape your whole life. And I was so excited. You know, I think, you know, during that time, a lot of a lot of parents, a lot of women thought that it would mean something for women or in little girls to see a female president. I do. I still think that that's true. But I also because I was pregnant with a, my first son, um, my only son, um, I couldn't help but think how his world might be shaped differently to see such a powerful female figure in leadership. So obviously, I was very surprised to learn that that was not the outcome of that day. In fact, I was so shocked that uh, I had to call out of work the next day and work from home because I was I was really, really um, shaken to my core. I was really scared about the future of our country, about what it would mean for my kids. And uh, I wanted to just hide. You know, I wanted to go under the covers and not come up. But uh, I'm just I'm not built that way. So I, I got to work. Uh, I realized, you know, I'm a scientist. I have a master's of science. And so what I, I got to hypothesizing right away. And what I thought to myself was if this was so shocking and surprising for me, it must be true for others as well. So I thought if I could begin engaging my community members and learning as much as I can and pushing back against this hateful administration, that maybe just maybe we could be a small check on the Trump administration. Uh, and I, I started ramping up my activism, getting more involved with groups that I had previously been involved in, like Moms Demand Action, Planned Parenthood. From there, I just I started learning more and more, got involved with immigrant rights groups. I helped organize the Women's March in 2018 in Atlanta. Uh, and then I started electing Democrats. I volunteered on my state assemblyman's reelection campaign, Assemblyman Tony Durso. As a volunteer, I managed his campaign. Seven days a week, 10 to 15 hours a day. Was happy to to do it because I thought the answer was electing Democrats. He's a, he's a great candidate and a wonderful assemblyman. I worked on my state senator's campaign. We flipped that seat. I chased ballots for Stacey Abrams. I was making calls and texts for other candidates. Uh, I even handed out palm cards for, for Tom Swazi at the time. I thought that he would be a check on the Trump administration, and it turns out he's been more of a welcome mat. 
So, you know, for me, the Brett Kavanaugh hearings really changed things after, you know, I, I was going through my days uh, really trying to work to, to elect these Democrats. And then, you know, Brett Kavanaugh was nominated and I had gone down to D.C. to protest and the whole story about that, that really sort of changed my outlook on really the world. It was there that I knew that I was going to have to do a lot more. And I knew that everyone was going to have to do a lot more if we were going to try to somehow survive the Trump presidency. And uh, when I came back to New York, I noticed something that I hadn't noticed because I was so busy trying to elect Democrats, thinking that, well, if we just elect the Democrats, we'll be okay. And I noticed that he was really quiet. In fact, not a single statement on the Kavanaugh hearings. I thought that was really surprising because he frequently um, touts himself as a women's rights champion. Uh, and then I looked back and I realized he hadn't said a single comment about all the sexual assault allegations against Trump. And then I did a little more digging and I found out that he's really had to be pushed over time to support women's issues. In fact, at the time, he was he had been a long supporter of the Hyde Amendment, which is an amendment that blocks funding for poor women to access abortion. Uh, you know, he never pushed back on all the attacks on Roe v. Wade. And then there's like a plethora of other issues that the more I dug, the more I found out I had a representative that didn't represent me. You know, he he was working hard to roll back banking regulations. Well, you know, after the housing bubble, so many people lost their homes. You know, he broke with the party to support ICE. He's called immigration a third rail. He was one of the last Democrats to support impeachment. What he finally did, he said he wished for a speedy trial with no witnesses. This is supposed to be a Democrat. And then after, you know, Trump was acquitted from, I don't even want to call it a Senate trial because it wasn't really a trial. Uh, you know, Trump was on the stage at the national prayer breakfast, waving a newspaper, saying he was acquitted, attacking Democrats and disparaging them. Tom Swazi chaired and hosted that breakfast. Let, let's put aside for a second that the, the group that funds that breakfast each year is a dark uh, pay to play group that supports anti LGBTQ legislation globally. But Sheridan hosted that breakfast where Trump was making fun of not making fun, disparaging and attacking Democrats. What did Tom Swazi do? Well, he went over and shook Donald Trump's hand and then sat next to him in between the podium on the dais next to uh, Mike Pence. So the reality is, is that I learned the hard lesson of it's not enough just to elect Democrats. We have to elect better Democrats. We have to elect Democrats that are fighting for people. Uh, you know, my opponent takes millions of dollars in corporate uh, corporate PAC money, millions of dollars. And it shows. It shows in his votes. It shows in his legislations. And it shows in his priorities. So he's prioritizing corporations and corporate donors. And I'm running to be a voice for the people. Yeah, I think that's a pretty strong case. We have touched on um, a few things that Sawazi's uh, said and done on this show, mainly um very odd statement that came out around the first uh, Families Belong Together rally in uh, rallies in 2018 about how people are too mad or something like that. And his defense of ICE on Fox News, it was quite frankly, very bizarre. Uh, I am interested in hearing more about what you said happened when you went to protest the Kavanaugh uh, nomination. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, sure. Um, so I had gone down twice to protest. Uh, I'm a survivor myself, so it was really hitting me hard. Uh, I felt very, very personal to me. At the time, I was managing State Assemblyman's Tony Durso's re-election campaign, and so I had taken two days off. You know, the first time I went down to protest, or I guess I took a couple of days off the second time. The last time I went down, I actually was there for both votes. The first time where Jeff Flake was um, approached in the elevator by Ana Maria Chila, who's amazing, uh, 
uh, and, and forced him to really think about what he was doing, uh, which which prompted a somewhat of a sham, impartial, uh, very partial uh, investigation to which, you know, we knew the outcome. Uh, so even though we knew that Brett Kavanaugh would be confirmed, I couldn't stay home. I was very antsy. I was very anxious. And so the night before I said to my husband, I'm going down. Uh, I'd like for the whole family to come. And he said, okay, really? We should bring the kids? And I said, absolutely. We need to bring the kids. And my husband's very supportive. So we got in the car and, and we drove down to DC. And, you know, part of the reason I went down was because I wanted Dr. Blasey Ford to know that there were thousands and thousands of people standing in solidarity with her. People came from all over the country. She wouldn't know that I was there. You know, it, it would mean absolutely nothing. But I wanted her to open the paper the next day or see something online with just spat, smatterings of people. Uh, that was important to me. I felt like that's what I would have wanted. I would have, if, if that were me. And I just, I thought she was so incredibly brave. Uh, and I just, I thought she deserved that support. You know, the reason I wanted to bring down my children was because, um, Brett Kavanaugh will loom over my daughter's lives and my son's life as a Supreme Court justice, you know, probably overturning very important cases. Uh, and I was scared for my children. So I wanted them to know that I, their mom was on the front lines fighting for them. And I wanted them to know when they got older and could understand it a little bit better that they were there, too, that they were on the front lines fighting for themselves. That's important. I think that's a really important lesson that we can impart to our children. You know, but I was standing there. This was one of those moments to me that uh, I'll never forget. It was one of those, you know, cement you in time moments like where were you when Princess Diana passed away? Right. So I was standing at the foot of the Supreme Court. I was holding my little girl's hands. My son was in the stroller in front of me. My little girls had just turned eight and four. And um, I was really angry. Uh, how could we end up here? How did we let this happen? Filling with anger. And I know that I should have been filled with complete despair, that there was just, how were we going to, to come out of this? And this is the exciting part. I have their little hands in mine and I'm angry. And all of a sudden I started looking around. And I see people from all over, people who didn't know each other, some who did, but, but many strangers consoling each other, holding each other, locking arm in arm, pushing back, chanting, singing. And it was the first time I think in my life that I really realized what true collective power looks like. And it planted these seeds in me, I think that, you know, I, as I say, like, I, I often say that in that moment, something in me shifted. And it was that I knew, I knew that I was going to have to give a lot more. I knew we were all going to have to give a lot more, but I also knew that if we could and like engage and, um, energize enough people that we can make it happen, you know, organizing and coalition building, it's hard work, right? And it's long work. It's about a long game. It's about, you know, sometimes you get a win, but it's usually like those hard fought wins over long periods of time that start to shift change. But it was in that moment that um, really changed everything for me. Uh, so as much as I look back on that day, and I think anytime you say the name Brett Kavanaugh, we get this pit in our stomach. Uh, it's a terrible feeling. But for me, it's a little bit hopeful because I know that so many people were awoken that day. Right? We, we woke up to what was happening. And I think that day created a lot of future activists, a lot of future organizers. And I've seen them. And I, I, you know, I continue to see them when I go down to D.C. to protest or stand in solidarity with other groups of people. So, um, you know, it was a very important day in my life. That's a wonderful story of finding um, inspiration in um, such a difficult time. All I remember feeling was, was anger. But um, 
I'm glad that you took inspiration about that. Well, I think when you see people come together like that, right, even in a time of crisis or even in a time of, of such turmoil and despair, and you see pe- you see the strength, right, of the collective. And, and it wasn't my own, but it was really just observing everything that was going on around me that made me realize that we could do it, but it was going to have to be together. Shifting the focus a little bit, what do you think is the most important issue facing our district? There's a couple of issues that are, you know, facing our district that are important. And when I go around, I'm on the campaign trail, what I typically hear are healthcare and affordability. But then there's different pockets where there are issues that are really important, like immigrants' rights. You know, we have one of the top 10 uh, most populated undocumented populations in the country. And that's, you know, a very, very real issue for us. But the environment also, right? We are a coastal community. And I think the environment is a particular issue where I always equate it to that, you know, that meme about the frog sitting in that pot of water on low flame. Everything's fine, right? Because we're not immediately seeing all the effects in in a dramatic way. So folks kind of put it aside. But the environment and, and the environmental crisis is the existential crisis of our generation. It is something that we need to address. And, you know, the science is very clear on this. We need to address it right away in order to save our planet. So our children and our grandchildren have a habitable planet to live on. So I think um, there needs to be a tremendous amount of focus there that, that just isn't there right now, because if we don't fix that, all these other issues are not going to matter. Uh, in the long run, right? Obviously, in the time of COVID-19, we are seeing um, a tremendous amount of what I would, you know, normally term progressive issues that we've been fighting for uh, really are at the forefront. They're on people's, you know, front steps right now. Uh, I'm an avid supporter of single-payer health care. I think that it is not only the morally uh, responsible way forward, but it's also the fiscally responsible way forward forward. And we're seeing what that looks like, right? So whether someone believes that, you know, they're entitled and someone else should just get a better job or not, like, because that's typically, you know, the um, defense for not wanting um, single payer health care. We're seeing what a public health issue looks like, right? Those who can't afford health care, it's dangerous for the general public at large, folks who are homeless, and that population is only growing in our district. It becomes a public health issue, not only, you know, for all of us, but, you know, for the whole country. We've seen how this virus continues to spread. So, um, you know, I think right now, you know, health care is an issue, but we also need to contain this virus. And I think the way that we do that is by um, having the government prioritize people. We haven't seen that. All of the stimulus packages that have been passed have overwhelmingly favored corporations. I have been calling for uh, a rent and mortgage freeze. I've been calling for direct cash payments to every person, uh, not only during the pandemic, but through recovery. Uh, Right now, what they've proposed is ridiculous, and it's really putting people in danger. People are not going to stay home if they can't afford to feed their families. They're going to go out more. They're going to try to find some kind of work. They're going to try to help their families. And nobody, you know, any any one of us would do that. So uh, it's. I think it's been really irresponsible. And I think it's really telling, frankly. And this has been on both sides. You know, it's not something the Democrats can blame the Republicans for. Sure, Mitch McConnell uh, is being Mitch McConnell and he's telling blue states to drop dead. Uh, That's not a surprise. And, And you know what? It's also not an excuse. Because where is our Democratic House? Why aren't they pushing back? This is the fourth bill that's passed now that's overwhelmingly helping corporations. And let's be really clear about this small business loan piece of it, because we saw what happened. Harvard took a piece. Shake Shack took a piece. All these larger corporations took a piece and really pillaged from small businesses. And so what did Congress do? Shake Shack gave it back, though. (laughs) Shake Shack did give it back. Someone else just gave it back, too. But they gave it back because of public outrage and pressure. 
right? So who knows how many other uh, businesses have have dipped from that pot? Um, you know, someone was just on CNN the other night saying that, um, you know, his small business received $3 million. He's like, this is basically legalized fraud. And but what we have seen, uh, and we know this, a corporation has a team of lawyers and they have folks set up who can apply for these loans right away, whereas a small business may not have that infrastructure. But instead of fixing that loophole with this new stimulus bill that they just passed, they left it the same. So more corporations can continue to pillage it and, and the, the small businesses will get very little. We, we've seen a history of it. We need to prioritize people, um, you know, whether it's in the time of COVID or not. And we have a Congress right now that is not doing that. Well, thank you. Um, one of my questions was, how can Congress aid with COVID recovery? And you've, you've <laughs> answered that. Um, I did want to go back. I believe you're a supporter of the Green New Deal. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what that would mean for like the average American and also for for people in New York? Yeah, absolutely. So so the Green New Deal is a resolution, right? It's it's not um, legislation right now. And, and what it centers on is transferring to renewable energy, 100 percent renewable energy. Um, and it sets an, a pretty ambitious goal by 2050. And, and this is based on science, right? It, because we need to do this by 2050. Otherwise, uh, we will have irreparable damage. It centers on reducing greenhouse gases by uh, 40 to 60 percent in the next 10 years. So by 2030. And it 0% by 2050. It centers on frontline communities, meaning that uh, we will help the communities that need it the most first. And this part, which I think is really exciting and really applicable to where we are today, given this pandemic, it will build a green new economy, creating jobs. And there's so many jobs that it will create from infrastructure jobs, coding jobs, engineering jobs, um, solar and wind energy, uh, agriculture jobs. Like, so the proposal, it, it really is combined with a jobs guarantee. And, you know, the pushback on the Green New Deal has always been, well, it's not feasible because it would require a complete economic reset. Well, now we find ourselves uh, in a position where many businesses are closing down, corporations will close down too. That's the reality of where we are. So I think it's really important for Congress to be looking forward because we will come out of this pandemic eventually. And when we do, we will have an opportunity, a tremendous opportunity to really save our planet right? To usher in a green new economy. We will need to build an economy. So why not make it a green economy? Why not uh, move toward a future that creates a habitable and sustainable planet? Now, this is multi-level. It's easy to say that. It's not just our district that, you know, it, it is our country. It is globally. Uh, so it's going to be really important that we elect a, a presidential representative who can converse with other world leaders and come together to build this plan. I think it's, it's, it's ambitious, but it's totally doable and it's a necessity. We need Need to do it. We don't have a choice. So, you know, it's, it's going to be, I think, up to, you know, many of the voters of America, you know, to take this opportunity that we have right now. But I, I think, you know, particularly on Long Island, you know, we have specific issues that are going to become very problematic sooner rather than later that I don't think enough, you know, New Yorkers realize, you know, we're all a coastal community. We are losing our shoreline as, you know, ice continues to melt and seas continue to rise. What, you know, we have an aquifer system where we access our drinking water and our bathing water. And as the seas rise, it pushes in on our aquifer system, creating saltwater intrusion. That is not drinkable water. It's going to be problematic. We're going to have a water security issue. And as you likely know, uh, many of our aquifer systems are polluted. Uh, the Bethpage plume, for example, is the most toxic and carcinogenic, uh, essentially pollution ball 
in the whole country uh, that sits in an aquifer system. And, you know, unfortunately, my opponent has taken money from and continues to take money from the company that is responsible for that dumping uh, and has not held them accountable to clean it up. In fact, there was a court case recently where the um, Northrop Grumman was required to pay $785 million to remediate and clean up this plume. Uh, of course, they're fighting it. Our current congressman is still, you know, very proud of the fact that he's giving them federal contracts and, and moving on. And, you know, um, Newsday did an expose on it, um, I want to say about two months ago. And I'm not sure if you, you caught it, but, um, you know, Newsday reported that, you know, Northrop Grumman had known for at least 40 years how, um, you know, their operations were contributing to the pollution in the room and how toxic they were. And Newsday also reported that government officials have known. Well, my opponent was the Nassau County executive for 10 years of what oversees that area. So what's been going on? It's egregious, frankly, uh, that, you know, we, we are having to um, push back. We, we have to stop electing representatives who don't want to represent us. Yeah, I, I can certainly agree with that. I guess uh, my next question for you is on a slightly different topic. It's uh, an issue that's I've been thinking about for a long time. I was a clinic escort at Planned Parenthood for a while. Um, the program kind of changed in response to violence at clinics across the country. And I'm also a supporter of and a fundraiser for the New York Abortion Access Fund to directly help people who need abortions who cannot get them. And I was wondering, this is just a question I like to ask people who are running for office. Is there anything that can be done to regulate crisis pregnancy centers? I know there's been a lot of court cases saying that, you know, they have the right to free speech. It doesn't really make a lot of sense to me that, you know, not in New York State, but in other states, you know, the states can mandate that doctors give patients misinformation. But then, you know, someone who's not a doctor can go around telling lies and, and, and misleading people seeking abortions and run out the clock. Is there anything Congress can do on this level? Yeah, I think that's a it's a really good question. Uh, and it's it is something we talk about a lot. I mean, first and foremost, let me let me start by saying, you know, if we can pass single payer health care system, a lot of this issue goes away. And I think, you know, you're right. We don't see this issue so much in New York as much as we see it in other states. So I think that there is likely a way we can, you know, work on some kind of mandate where these both centers, <laughs> you know, are mandated to use science and fact, right? And, and maybe find them if they're found to, you know, continue these ridiculous practices that they continue to employ. I think, unfortunately, we, we've had to do these workarounds. I'm more interested in finding that solution, which I believe really is universal health care, so that this abortion debate goes away, right? Because then, then um, folks will have access to it without having to be steered into these, what I like to call faux centers. And repealing the Hyde Amendment. Yeah, absolutely. I think I mentioned that when I when I first spoke. Um, you know, Barbara Lee has the Each Woman Act, and um, it's starting starting to get a little bit more traction right now. I'm thankful that we're at a place where we're talking about the Hyde Amendment. I think many people aren't aware of what it is, uh, and when they find out, uh, they're rightfully enraged. Um, so I think absolutely we need to repeal it. Uh, I've been campaigning on repealing it, but I also think we need to protect Roe. Uh, we've seen you know plenty of congressional members write letters to to overturn it, to repeal it. And we see it on the state level, like popcorn popping up all over and, and it's putting women at risk. So, um, you know, these are things that I feel very, very strongly about. I am so over and done with men telling women what they can and cannot do with their bodies. You're allowed to feel that maybe it's not for you. Maybe you don't agree with it. That's fine. You're allowed to have that feeling, but you are not allowed to impart that feeling on someone else. Totally agree. 
This is not necessarily a policy question, but I've been watching, you know, some of the more local campaigns to Queens for city council next year and for Queensborough president. But I was just wondering, what is it like to campaign during a pandemic? How do you do that? Well, what I keep telling my volunteers and my staff is we were born for this because we are the generation that grew up with Internet. You know, I was in high school uh, when dial-up first came into existence. Yeah. And so, you know, we've our campaign has attracted, thankfully, a lot of young um, high school students and college students. And and they're really the experts at all of the new social media platforms, etc. So, you know, it's hard, I think, particularly for an insurgent campaign, a challenger campaign like mine. I tend to attract a lot of door knockers. You know, we had a tremendous field program that we had really just launched. I mean, we had been out knocking um, in the winter. We were knocking doors and, uh, you know, people thought we were nuts. People uh, who have run before and, and, and even some endorsing groups said, why are you knocking doors right now? And I said, because I have to, you know, we have to start early. We have to get the word out. We have to start building the space. People thought we were really nuts. And now we're so thankful that we were able to knock those thousands and thousands of doors that we did, because otherwise we wouldn't have had any real field program. But we've had to transition. You know, everything becomes online. So it's all about phone banking and text banking and digital organizing and and really getting gritty and scrappy, you know, which I think is really the heart and spirit of um, of grassroots campaign anyway. So we enter all ideas and and we're leveraging outreach every possible way that we can but it's hard (laughs) so if you are elected to congress and joe biden is elected president how do you think that you can be a check or a push to the left on that administration yeah well i'm hoping that we will elect um, a more progressive congress and i hope that we take back the senate for sure that's been really the crux here uh, i'd like to see mitch mcconnell lose his seat and you know if we if we can accomplish those things uh, i think it's very unlikely that joe biden vetoes a bill that a congress passes i think that we can push in a lot of ways and and, and it really comes down to the influence of corporate money in politics right because To me, that seems to be the largest impediment as to why things don't get done. And what you're seeing from the progressive movement is all of these candidates that have completely rejected corporate money or special interest money. And so when they get to Congress, they've been very clear about why they're running and who they're fighting for. And I think we'll start to see a huge shift. They don't owe anything to the insurance industry, you know, the uh, weapons manufacturers, pharma, they don't owe anything to these groups. So they're able to go and really speak truth to power and create coalitions and build education. Uh, and we've started to see that really in the last Congress, right? So imagine if we can double that or triple that, uh, that voice becomes bigger. And then we're able to, um, I think, you know, and like we talked about earlier, right? Shake Shack gave back the money because there was public outrage. So if we can continue these education campaigns and let the public know what's really going on, and I know you know this, a lot of these bills have pork in them. They have their poison pills in the bills. You know, it might be called something wonderful, but the bill does the opposite of that. So we need to really educate the public about what's really happening. And I think if we do that, you know, we will be able to pass legislation. And and as I said, I think it's I think it's very unlikely that if we could pass progressive legislation that a Democratic president vetoes it. I think it's very unlikely that that happens. Okay. One of the things that um, gave me a very, very small amount of of comfort on uh, November 9th, 2016, uh, I live in Queens now. I grew up in Nassau County. I was like, well, okay, this is terrible. Trump's president. Hey, well, we got got Tom Suozzi. I know that guy. 
But as we've said, he hasn't really been the check on President Trump that people on the left would have liked to have seen. If we get a, a mixed result and we and uh, President Trump is reelected, but you're elected to Congress, how do you think you could push back on him? I think the people of this district want to know that they have a fighter, right? They want to know that if it's time to impeach, that their representative is standing behind it with courage and conviction, because it's the right thing to do, not the politically expedient thing to do. They want a representative who, when evidence comes out that Stephen Miller is just a complete racist and his racist policies have informed, you know, locking kids in cages, that their representative will call for his resignation, right? They want to know that their representative is fighting to represent them, is fighting for policies that are going to help Long Island and Queens families. Uh, we haven't seen that with Tom Swazi. And so, you know, part of it goes into that building coalitions and, and, and that. But that's what I have seen. That's where I have seen, you know, a lot of us think that because there's a Democrat in office, well, he must be fighting in the best interest of the people. That is not the case with Tom Swazi. It's just not. And so I think, you know, well, for me, education has been a huge part of my campaign as I talk about, you know, why I'm running. A lot of why I'm running is because when I started doing the research, I realized that that Tom wasn't the person I thought he was. You know, he was not voting in the best interest of people. And uh, when I tell people, like, look, this is how we vote, and you can see it, this is public record. All of it is very true. You know, none of it is to disparage his character. He seems like a very charismatic guy. You know, this is his perspective. I, I, I believe that he's acting in, you know, what he thinks is the best interest. I just have a different approach. And so being that representative and, and really championing democratic values is it means something and it's important. And I think that's what our district wants. You know, that's what our district needs. Um, now, passing that legislation is different. That's that's dependent upon um you know, it's it's dependent on uh, on electing a Congress and, and flipping the Senate. And, and then, you know, we're going to have to battle that out and see what that looks like. But, you know, we hear a lot like Tom Swazi does sit on the House Ways and Means Committee. It's a very powerful committee. He's very proud of that. I understand why he's proud of it. It's a great seat to sit on. But this is a committee that regulates tax, right? It, he, first of all, let, let's let's set aside for a second that he's regulating the committees. That he's regulating companies that give him money. That's ethically a, very problematic. Why haven't we seen him fighting for, you know, paid sick leave, for paid parental leave? Why haven't we seen these what, what are seemingly low hanging fruit pieces of legislation? If that seat is so powerful, well, why aren't you using your influence? You know, likewise, he, he touts the fact that he's the vice chair of the Problem Solvers Caucus. You know, the Problem Solvers Caucus is a, a caucus that is split between Republicans and conservative Democrats. And, and Tom is very proud of saying, you know, I work across the aisle. Bipartisanship is the way forward. Listen, bipartisanship, sure, that's the dream. But when you are serving in a Trump administration where we have seen Republicans, a GOP party who's completely turned their backs on Americans and got in line right behind Trump's ridiculous policies and thoughts. I mean, Lord, yesterday he told people to inject themselves with disinfectant. Like, this is the guy you want to stand behind? And then you want to negotiate with these people in good faith? Like, they're not negotiating back in good faith. If they were, amazing. Let's do that. That's how we can get things done. But right now, that's not what's happening. So why would you choose to align yourself with a party that doesn't want to work with you? Uh, Mitch McConnell told this state to drop dead. 
That's the party you're aligning yourself with. I don't think this is a red district. I know folks will say it's a purple district. I don't believe that either. Uh, it's changed very much. A lot has changed since, um, since Trump was elected. This district came out in a big way for Hillary Clinton. We all saw what this district did in 2018. We had a huge turnout. Uh, and I've been organizing. I've been on the ground. So I've seen it. And, and I, I'm a scientist. So I love the data. Don't get me wrong. But there is this intangible piece of elections. There's this intangible piece of organizing. You know, I, I love to say this, and I, I know this is a long answer, but, um, you know, the Tea Party, when they came into prominence and, and essentially really, like, had a stranglehold on our government. Do you know how many Tea Party organizing groups were in place at that time when they were able to have such an effect on the government? Take a guess. I mean, they were astroturfed, weren't they? They have like Koch brothers money and stuff. But they had 600 organizing groups. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Do you know how many indivisible <laughs> groups there are? More, definitely. 6,000. Yep. Mm -hmm. 6,000. Thousand, mm -hmm. and this is all people-powered movements, you know. So you're right. Like you need, you do need the money or time, you know, or both to get the message out. But this is what's happening, and more people are waking up to see, uh, you know, what what's really happening. So I feel very hopeful. You know, we'll get over the finish line, and we'll be able to deliver for this district in in a really meaningful way, because that's what I think people want. Yeah. Um, is there anything else that you want to add? The only thing that I wanted to add, because I didn't get to say it when we were talking about COVID-19. In that response, something that I think is not being talked about enough, you know, as you can tell, all of my policies center around people, but we need to do more for the essential workers. You know, we've had a, a big push for healthcare workers, and rightfully so. These people are absolute angels and heroes, and uh, they need their PPE, they need support, they need hazard pay, all of it, absolutely. But there are also heroes who are, you know, cashiers in supermarkets who are putting themselves at risk every day. You know, I. One of the things that makes me push so hard uh, with this campaign, uh, I'll just tell a quick story. I, when I set up my bank account for my campaign, which, you know, is part of the process, I had this wonderful woman, or these two women really that helped, this woman Hope and this woman Daphne. And uh, they helped figure it out because they weren't quite sure how to, how to do it. And they, they, they really went above and beyond. And they're very, very kind. Uh, and every time I see them, you know, they ask how the campaign is going. And my bank happens to be attached to a supermarket. And so one night I had to go to the supermarket late. Uh, I had to get something for my kids um, party the next day. And so my husband and I went in and I saw Hope and Daphne ringing up groceries. And these are two women that work in a bank. You know, they're one one behind a desk and one a teller. Seemingly, we would, you know, you'd think that that would be somewhat of a living wage. But these women not work all day at the bank and then they take a late shift at the grocery store to make ends meet. And that really hit me hard, you know, and it's like that was a really um, a motivating reason for me to keep pushing for a living wage and keep fighting. You know, when I meet people who are just so amazing, who are really working so hard, these tremendous hours, but I can't help but think of them right now. I can't help but think of you know, all these folks in the food service industry who are who are really helping keeping us going. You know, you, we, we probably all have friends that complain about being at home and not being able to go anywhere, but there are people that have it much worse. And I think, you know, we have to appreciate what we have. So I think, you know, certainly a lot more has to be a lot more resources have to go to essential workers as well. And then, you know, I can't help but think about the people who are locked in cages at the border. 
this has been a problem for a very long time. We know children are locked in cages at the border. We know that uh, close quarters and mass gatherings are really the worst situation one could find themselves in in a time of a global pandemic. We need to let these people go. We have, you know, tracking devices and things like that, if, if, even if that's what they need to do. But like, this is ridiculous. This is absurd. These people did not commit crimes. They're coming to presenting for asylum. Like, what the hell is this administration doing? Uh, and we haven't heard a lot about that. You know, so I think it's important that um, I just wanted to give a, a little bit of airtime to that because, you know, I've been a huge advocate for immigrant rights. I went down to the border last summer. I volunteered down there. I heard the stories firsthand. And these people are really they're no different from you and I. They just had a bad shake at life. And, and most of the people that I met were fleeing gun violence, sexual violence, just extreme poverty. And they're coming with like their little children and they're just asking for a chance. You know, they didn't do anything wrong. So um, I, I think that we need to really boost that and, and pay more attention to it. Yes. Thank you for bringing that up. It's a very important issue. Did some Lights for Liberty event last year and it was uh, it was like my first organizing thing. Like, Thank you for doing that. We need to keep talking about it. Where can people find out more information about your campaign? Thank you. Uh, my website is dorigo2020.com, D-A-R-R-I-G-O 2020.com. Uh, Facebook and Instagram, we are Dorigo for Congress. And Twitter, we are at Dorigo Melanie. If anyone is interested in getting involved in our campaign, we need all the volunteers we can get right now, particularly now that it's you know so difficult to campaign during this pandemic. Uh, costs have gone up because we need to, um, you know, we need to do more ads. We need to even making calls costs money. So if anyone is inclined uh, to make a donation, that would be really, really helpful. Even small amounts go a long way. Mm -hmm. And the primary is on June 23rd. June 23rd, and we are encouraging everyone to apply for an absentee ballot. I want everyone to vote in a safe way. I, I personally don't think that going to the polls is going to be so safe in June, uh, even at the end of June. So now is the time to really, you know, you have to apply and uh, put in an application to get an absentee ballot. You are able to submit that online now, which is great. Uh, and then they'll send you your ballot. And then you have to put the ballot in the mail. There has been a little bit of confusion with uh, executive orders coming out from uh, Governor Cuomo, what he may or may not do. But we're not counting on that. And so if you want to count, if you want to fight for this country, please, please, please apply for an absentee ballot. Yes. Um, and if you live in the state of New York and you're a little burned out on the presidential primary, remember that there's other primaries going on on June 23rd. So uh, please vote. Thank you so much for coming on the show. You can find me on Twitter at Miss Cherry Pie and good luck with everything. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Feminist Coffee Hour podcast, tackling political rumors from the feminist outer boroughs of New York City. If you like our podcast, please support us at our Patreon, which you can find at www.patreon.com slash feminist coffee hour, or, you know, do a Google for Patreon and feminist coffee hour. Our patrons get early releases of episodes, plus other cool perks at higher levels. If you can't support us financially, you can always give us a five-star rating on iTunes and write us a review as it helps the algorithm know we're there and that people like us, like you. Our intro and outro music is Making It Hard by Bridget Ellsworth, and you can find her music on SoundCloud.